Bible reading is from Luke 4, 1 to 13. English Bible, page 834. Chinese Bible, 1663. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Hey, how are we? Good to see you all. Uh, we haven't met. My name's James Lewis, one of the uh, ministers here, and uh, have the joy of, of going through Luke with you. And we're continuing, as Andrew said, uh, in our series in Luke, uh, which we've called Follow Me, because Jesus says, follow me. Um, and the thing, remember, we're praying about for each other, praying for our church this term, is that as we, as we hear that call from Jesus to follow him, we're praying that some of us would move from being skeptics about Jesus to believers. That some would move from being just fans of Jesus to followers. And some would move from just being admirers of Jesus to worshippers of Jesus. Now I know I've heard uh, over the last couple of weeks there's been lots of discussion and questions around that amongst us as we've been wrestling with what that looks like. What, it, what does it actually look like to be moving from an admirer to a worshipper of Jesus? And so I think it's helpful as we begin this morning to dig back a little bit into our stories. And so I want to ask you uh, this morning, if you're a Christian here today, what was it that first drew you to Christianity? Or if you grew up in a Christian home, what was it that drew you and you got to a point where you said, actually, I want to own this faith for myself? Or if you're not a Christian here today, what is it that you find compelling about Jesus? Compelling enough that you're here with your questions, your doubts, wrestling with us as we go through Luke. For me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, 
Uh, we almost never went to church. Uh, we didn't even do the token Christmas and Easter thing. Um, we only went to church uh, for weddings and funerals. So it had to be really happy or really sad to get us into a church building as a family. But in May of 1992, when I was in year 12, I became a Christian. I remember it as clear as day, sitting on my bed, praying, asking God to forgive me and to be king of my life. Now, there were a couple of things that I found compelling about Christianity. The first was that when I first started going to youth group, I met and found a community that was warm and welcoming in a way that I'd never, ever experienced before. And the second thing was that as I read Mark's Gospel and A Fresh Start by John Chapman, I love the whole God freely forgives because of Jesus thing. That's what I found at first compelling. And what about you? And as you answer that in your mind, don't do the kind of neat, polished answer that you might feel like you need to give if you're being interviewed on stage or you're talking about it at a community group. You know, what's the right answer to say? But what really drew you to Christianity? I was talking with a lady about that a couple of weeks ago, and her answer was wonderfully honest. She said, I became a Christian because I was afraid of going to hell. I love her honesty. So what was it for you? Were you drawn by the offer of forgiveness? Did you hope that God would make you healthy and wealthy? Were you lonely, lost, and church offered you a place to belong? Did you feel that God could provide rest for your tortured soul? Or is it just that Christianity made sense of life for you? What was it for you? All, all those things that I've listed and more uh, are all little pictures of what it looks like to be an admirer of Jesus. That, that something about Jesus scratches where we itch. And that's okay. People come to Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. But here's the thing. Here's the exciting thing. Our section of Luke today helps us, shows us what it looks like to move from being just an admirer of Jesus to a worshipper of Jesus. That's exciting, isn't it? Because that means that some of you could move from being admirers of Jesus today to become worshippers of Jesus today. That would be exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah? Yeah? I think that's worth praying about. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you've brought us together in this building this morning with all our different stories and backgrounds. And we really don't want this to be a morning where we just go through the motions. We want it to be a morning where we deeply engage with you. And so we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would be humble and teachable before you, that we would hear your voice in your word and respond in faith. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. So we're going to look at three things about Jesus today. Firstly, Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God for us. And Jesus, God fighting for us. So firstly, Jesus, God with us. Uh, if you come back a little bit earlier in Luke to uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, picks up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago in Luke. Um, and we read, verse 21, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, if you've been following along in Luke, that's exciting because we heard a couple of weeks ago that crowds were coming down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John said, there's one coming after me who's greater than me. And now Jesus turns up. 
And look what happens. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now I was uh, baptized at 24 years of age. Uh, We didn't do it in a church service. It was done in someone's backyard pool, uh, which was kind of special. Now, we didn't kind of uh, go down there, slippery dip into the water. Uh, I didn't do a bomb into the pool. Um, I was, went into the water, and I came up, and there was a crowd gathered around, and people cheered and clapped, and then we prayed. Uh, it was kind of special, uh, a bit like our welcome home service every year. It's special. But I can tell you what, when I was baptized, when we've done our welcome home service, there was no voice from heaven. The Spirit didn't descend in bodily form like a dove. And yet when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened. It was a divine moment. And we read that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Not not an actual dove, not a bird sitting on his shoulder, but like a dove. And God spoke. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God there draws upon Uh, Some ideas from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. God kind of quotes himself there, really. Um, But if you've written the greatest book in the history of everything, (laughs) then, of course, what can you do but quote yourself, right? So what's actually going on here in the baptism? And we need to be really clear about this. This is not a man becoming God. That was the lie that the devil told Adam and Eve in the garden, that you can be like God. And this is not God telling Jesus who he is. No, Jesus already knows who he is. He knows he's the Son of God. No, this is for our benefit. This is not some private, secret moment between the Father and the Son. This is a public, audible moment for our benefit. God is telling us who Jesus is. And God says that Jesus alone uniquely, without competition, without rival, is his son. Jesus is his son in whom he delights, he rejoices, he celebrates. Do you see how special that is? Please don't miss what a beautiful gift from God this is for us. Because God's not saying here about Jesus, oh, here's a, here's a good man, a, a special man, a great teacher, No, he says, you are my son whom I love. And he's not saying, look, here's a man to admire and respect and and you probably should give him some thought at some point in your life. No, he says, you are my son. He says to us, follow him, trust him, worship him, enjoy him. Friends, that's how you move from just being an admirer of Jesus to a worshiper of Jesus. you, You grasp You enjoy, you celebrate that Jesus is God with us. And secondly, that Jesus is God for us. Luke, uh, straight after the baptism account, launches verse 23 into uh, a genealogy or a family tree of Jesus. Now, I just know that you're really excited about this bit, right? Really looking forward to a genealogy. Um, You know, like even as I say the word genealogy, probably your heart started beating faster and you've got the goosebumps and you think, oh, this is so good. I've got the, the flow charts on my wall. I've memorized all the names. And wouldn't it be great if our music director, Jace Jessup, could write a song about the genealogy that we could sing every week? We just love a genealogy. No, we don't really, do we? 
It's not our favorite part of the Bible. Let's be honest about it, right? And, and really, that's because there's just so many names. 77 names here. 39 of them from Heli in verse 23 to Mattathar in verse 31 are unknown outside Luke 3. So these guys are so ordinary and so unimportant, no one remembers them outside Luke 3. And then there's those names that are a little bit hard to pronounce, like verse 27, that one starting with Z. Now, the trick with this is to just say it fast and confidently, right? So it's Zerubbabel, right? Got it, nailed it. Let's do it together, Zerubbabel. Yeah, see, we're all experts now, just confidently and fast. That's the trick. So why did Luke go to all this trouble with this long genealogy? Well, sometimes people get excited about a genealogy, a family tree, because there's someone famous in the past who makes them feel famous. Uh, So my surname is Lewis. Um, My dad is English. My mum is Hungarian. And so my surname is Lewis. And in year five, I made this amazing discovery. I discovered that Lewis is derived from the Welsh Llewellyn. And Llewellyn was the last king of Wales. Boom! In my year five brain, I thought, ah, I've got royal blood. And you've often thought that, haven't you? As you've looked at me. There's something special about this guy. And then I discovered that up in the north of the United Kingdom is the Isle of Lewis. It's actually the Isle of Lewis and Harris, but we don't talk about that. We talk about those Harrises. It's the, and, and I had this image in my mind of, of arriving on the Isle of Lewis, a descendant of the King of Wales, a Lewis come home, and being celebrated. There's only 18,000 people there, but it's still the Isle of Lewis, right? See, sometimes we get excited about our history, our family tree, because we feel like there's someone special who makes us special. And in Jesus' family tree, there are some really big names, aren't there? Verse 31, he is descended from, the, from great King David. Verse 34, like all Jews, he is descended from Abraham. So it's a really good family tree. It's actually exactly the right kind of family tree for Jesus to be the Messiah, the King and Savior of the world. But then the family tree does this kind of weird thing. It, it keeps going after Abraham. Another 20 names. It's like when you're on holidays and it's that long car ride. And are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we keep going all the way back to verse 38. The son of Adam. The first man. Now don't miss how special this is. Jesus' family tree connects him to all of us. To all humanity. Every race. See, when Jesus came into our world he didn't sort of drop down he didn't magically appear over there no he took on our humanity he lived amongst us and this is exciting because all religions have us humans trying to reach up to God trying to connect with God ourselves and we go through all these desperate ways to do it all these rules and rituals but not with Jesus Jesus is God coming to us living amongst us But here's the problem. We don't just need Jesus to hang out with us. We don't need Jesus to come and do life with us. We actually need a saviour. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Human history 
is the long, terrible story of us trying to find something other than God which will make us happy. See, from Adam and Eve onwards, it's been a disaster, hasn't it? I mean, you can go grab your Bible and you can go through and say, oh, so where exactly did it all go wrong? Oh, right, it was pretty much at the beginning. Adam and Eve believed the lie of the devil that they could push God out of their lives and be little gods and run their own lives. And that's what sin is, isn't it? That's what sin is in my heart and your heart. Sin in my heart is that I live as if I were God. And the problem with the world is all of you because you also believe that you're God. That's sin. So we don't need Jesus just to come and hang out with us. We need a saviour. Friends, that's how you move from just being an admirer of Jesus to a worshipper. You see that you realize that you celebrate that Jesus is God with us, God for us, our saviour, that he fights for us. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the beginning of Luke 4. Straight from the genealogy, he goes into this battle with the devil. And this is not a battle like you might see one of those Hollywood blockbusters where the devil is kind of a 60-foot monster who's throwing balls of fire and Jesus kind of blocking it with the sword of truth or something like that. I mean, it would make a great movie. Um, but that's not what's happening here. No, it's a, a different kind of battle. Did you notice verse 2? What kind of battle is it? Call it out when you see it. What kind of battle is it? Temptation. Thanks, Jace. At 9am, people got it, and they were, but they weren't sure, so they mumbled. It's just if you see it, call it out strongly like Jace did. It's a battle of temptation, isn't it? That's the devil's real game in our lives. Tempting, deceiving, drawing us into sin. And he has an excellent strike rate. It's Genesis 3 and then pretty much the rest of human history, right? His strike rate, his hit rate is kind of something like one trillion trillion out of one trillion trillion, right? He's really good at this. The Puritan author Thomas Brooks wrote this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison. See what he's saying there? The devil will bait the hook of sin with whatever he thinks I or you will find juicy and tempting, exciting, enticing. And we know that's true because think about the times when you've gone, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? It's so foolish. It's so hurtful. It's so sinful. Why? why? Because the devil had shown us the bait but not the hook. He presented to us the golden cup but concealed the poison. And he's been doing it ever since Adam and Eve. He is very good at this. But he'd never come up against the Son of God. So look at how Jesus fights for us. Beginning of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. First thing we learn there is it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Does that mean he failed, that he sinned? No, verse 1, he is full of the Holy Spirit and he is led by the Holy Spirit. So quick quiz, show of hands, do you think that's generally a pretty good thing? Be full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, right? People aren't sure. Okay. Or just timid. And the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So Jesus was tempted. 
And often that's where we fail. We, we, we're tempted by pride or lust or greed or jealousy and we think, oh, I failed. And we just give in. Now, Jesus was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's how we respond. That's the issue. And look at how Jesus responds. He fights temptation with the word of God. You see that the, the devil tempts him, verse 3, verse 7, verse 9, and each time Jesus responds with the word of God. And that's often where we fail, isn't it? We toy with temptation. We spend hours and energy imagining what it would be like to do that thing, justifying why it's not really a sin, explaining why actually we didn't really have any choice but to do it, and protesting that actually we're really good people and, and that sin over there, well, it's not that serious. Jesus kills off temptation with the word of God and that's what we should do. But, but don't misunderstand here, it's not like a Harry Potter magic thing, right? A spell. You don't kind of face temptation and go, oh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, bam! Romans 8, 28, expelleramus. It's not like that. Because look, verse 10, who's, who's quoting scripture in verse 10? Call it out. Satan is, the devil is. So, so Satan can quote scripture, he can memorize scripture. So it's not just about memorizing and quoting scripture, it's whether we trust and obey God in his word. And so when we're tempted to be selfish and to lack compassion and just do life for ourselves, Ephesians 4.32 says to us, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And we could go for hours on that, couldn't we? One example after another. That might actually be a really great thing to do in your community groups to share with each other Bible verses that you found really helpful in fighting sin and temptation. We fight temptation with the word of God. Now, here's the important bit. Are you ready? We actually, honestly, can't do this properly, can we? Like, we fail at this. We need Jesus to fight for us, to do this for us. And this, in this passage, is all in how the devil tempts Jesus. Let me show you. Jesus' temptation is unique. It's really obvious in verse 3, if you are the son of God. So um, if, if the devil comes to Rocky here and says, Rocky, if you are the son of God, and Rocky would just say, oh, let me stop you there. I'm not, so the temptation doesn't work. Like, it, it's unique, right? The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, he is attacking, he is undermining, he is questioning the core of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Who is Jesus? The son of God. What has he come to do? Die on a cross for our sins. And so the devil attacks that. Each time he tempts him, he encourages Jesus to take matters into his own hands. It's like he's saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus, there's, there's another way to rule the world without all this humility and dying and suffering stuff. Like, you can be great on your own. You can do it your way, live your life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what drove Jesus to the cross? 
Was it power? Was it pride? Was it selfishness? No, you see, it was joy. Joy at doing his Father's will and saving us. See, some people see Jesus a bit like this. He's like a great work of art or a profound piece of English literature or a compelling song. People see Jesus like that. He is profound. He is interesting. He's worth reflecting on and admiring, being inspired by. But actually, Jesus is far more like this, the fresh air that we need, an oasis in the desert. Let me ask you and answer honestly. If you're dying of thirst in the desert, what you, what you really want, do you really want a piece of art to look at? Do you? Tell me, because that would be good to know. Do you want a piece of art to look at, yes or no? No. Do you want um, Shakespeare to read? No. Do you want to listen to Coldplay? No. <laughs> or, or opera, if you're not into Coldplay. Is that what you need? Is that what you want? You need water, right? You're dying of thirst. You need water. And in this broken, sinful world, we are all dying of thirst in the desert. We keep trying to fix it ourselves, solve it ourselves, find other ways, but only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can save us. Friends, that's how you move from being just an admirer of Jesus to a worshipper. You, you, you see, you grasp, you celebrate that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to rescue sinners like you and me. So where are you at with this this morning? Perhaps you're in a place where you're thinking, I want to move from being just an admirer of Jesus. I see that's what I've been doing. I'd, I'd love to be a worshiper of Jesus. If that's you, if you write on the welcome card, that's what you'd like to do. One of the staff would love to buy you a cup of coffee or tea this week and chat through your questions. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, there's some stuff here I just want to share with that friend, that workmate. It'd be so great if they could see this too. So as we heard, the word one-to-one -one is a great way to do that. Really easy and accessible, non-threatening way to read with a friend. Well, friends, we've seen that the way that we move from being admirers to worshippers of Jesus is that we grasp, we see, we love, we celebrate that Jesus is God's Son who came into the world to rescue sinners like you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, as we live in Australia, as we do life in this world, it's still possible, even in our post-Christian culture, for people to admire and respect Jesus, to say that he was a good man, a good teacher, a man like no other man, and sort of admire him and respect him. But we know, we've seen today, that Jesus is worthy of so much more. He is worthy of every praise that we could ever bring. He's worthy of all our worship, our lives, our devotion. And so you help each of us as we deal with that part of our lives that wants to just admire Jesus from at arm's length and keep him at a distance. Will you humble us in that? Will you heal us in that? Will you soften our hearts and minds that we would love to worship Jesus and give him all the glory? We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.